Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today's episode will be an encore presentation of our inaugural session for the Pioneers and Pathfinders virtual roundtable series. Last Wednesday, I had a live and lively discussion with four legal industry experts and thought leaders on the topic of navigating risks, benefits, and ethical considerations in the age of AI, which, as the title would indicate, focused on generative AI and the implications for the legal industry. These thought leaders, Kieran Malavarapu, Executive Vice President and Senior Manager of Legal Strategic Services at Liberty Mutual Insurance, Joseph Peach, Senior Loss Prevention Counsel at Alas, Lori Roser, Partner and General Counsel at Cypharth, and Travis Rogers, Director and Senior Managing Counsel of Innovation Law at Allstate, all offered incredible insights and perspective on this interesting and timely topic. Our panelists share their knowledge, experience, and valuable insights while we discuss the importance of risk and ethical implications associated with having policies or not, weighing the use of the tools, and how the rules extend across your organization, and much more. A special thank you to everyone who attended last week, and thank you to our listeners for joining us today. Greetings, and thanks to everyone for joining. My name is Stephen Poor, and I'm the host of Pioneers and Pathfinders which for those of you who don't know, is a podcast devoted to the journeys of people driving change in the profession. Today, I'll be the MC of this virtual roundtable. Now, I presume you wouldn't be here if you weren't already familiar, at least at some level, with generative AI, such as that exhibited by ChatGPT. Since the release of ChatGPT in November of last year, the talk about the impact of generative AI has reached a fever pitch. In fact, OpenAI, which is the owner of ChatGPT, reached a million users in the first week after the release of ChatGPT. Now, there seems to be little question but that this is potentially transformative technology that will impact many, many sectors. In a recent study, McKinsey predicts that, and I'm quoting here, generative AI could add the equivalent of 2.6 trillion to 4.4 trillion annually, end quote, in value to the global economy, which is roughly the size of the UK's entire economy. Moreover, McKinsey observes that unlike prior automation techniques, again, I'm quoting, generative AI has more impact on knowledge work associated with occupations that have higher wages and educational requirements, close quote. Obviously, the impact of this technology raises a huge number of questions, far more than we can address in today's virtual roundtable. I should also observe that there are more questions than there are answers. And while we're going to try to provide at least thoughts and opinions on some of the questions, I hope we don't leave you frustrated that we're not able to give you precise answers to many of the questions you have. But I think you'll find this uh, discussion informative and hopefully useful for you as you navigate these parameters. And there are a number of issues we'll address in subsequent roundtables down the road. Uh, Today, however, I'm joined by really a great group of panelists and participants in this virtual roundtable to talk about the impact of generative AI in the legal profession, even more specifically on the risks, benefits, and ethical issues around generative AI. I'm going to let the panelists introduce themselves, starting with Lori. Lori, you want to go first? Hi. Hi. Good morning. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm Lori Roser. I'm a partner in the general counsel for Cypher Shaw. 
And um, my my background and practice is generally in um, commercial litigation. Travis? Everybody, Travis Rogers. I'm director and senior managing counsel at Allstate. I lead up our new strategy enablement and implementation team. I focus on strategic initiatives, culture, and transformation for Allstate's law department. Fabulous. Kieran? Thank you, Steve. Uh, Kieran Malawarapu, head of the legal strategic services team, also known as the legal operations team in the industry for Liberty Mutual Group. Uh, my team is responsible for the management of outside counsel relationships, large policyholder risk management services, data analytics, predictive modeling tools, technology, project management. So very interesting topic today. Uh, so thanks for having me, Steve. Thanks, Karen. Joe? Hi, everyone. I'm Joe Peach. I am a senior loss prevention counsel with Alas. I've been with Alas about five years. And for those of you who don't know, Alas is a lawyer liability mutual insurer. Uh, and as a loss prevention counsel, I help work with and educate and, and train our member firms on uh, ethical concerns and other risk management issues. Before Alas, I was a practicing litigator for about a dozen years. And once upon a time, I wrote code for the equities division of a large investment bank. So I've done a few things. Uh, you're a coder. I didn't know that about you, Joe. Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently ChatGPT will do it for you. So, you know, right, not to right, worry. Right. <laughs> well, first off, let me extend my thanks to all of you uh, for making the time and sharing your insights uh, with the group that's joined us. It's, it's deeply appreciated. Now, before we get started, let me set the table uh, a little bit. We're going to assume uh, for the uh, for those of you listening in, we're going to assume you have at least a basic familiarity with the technology or at least the hype around it. We are not going to do a deep dive into how the technology works or the various manifestations of it. It is true that generative AI manifests itself in a variety of ways, but our focus here largely would be on the use of the technology to generate text known as large language models. And to remind you, LLMs ingest huge amounts of data and using sophisticated algorithms make statistical predictions as to words likely to follow preceding words, whether through prompts or generated text. It's not search technology producing links to sources. It's technology that generates new content from pre-existing information. Because of this, one of the interesting things about this technology, and particularly ChatGPT, is it's always fluent. It's not always right. And that raises a lot of the, sets the baseline for a lot of the discussion we're going to have. Now, the technology, as I said before, raises an enormous number of issues, from confidentiality concerns to underlying bias issues to copyright content ownership issues. And new developments are coming every day. In fact, I saw yesterday, I think, it was reported that the first defamation suit was filed against OpenAI as a result of the software generating a false report around an alleged embezzlement case that, of course, was entirely fiction. Now, as we talk through the issues, we're going to necessarily paint with a broad brush. If we'd done this three months ago, we'd have a singular focus on ChatGPT. But the impact of generative AI has blossomed into dozens of products with more every day that raise both similar and unique issues from each other. By trying to talk broadly, we're hoping to give you a solid footing as you consider specific applications of generative AI to your operations. We're going to start where we think we ought to start, which is talking about some of the ethical issues around this technology. So, Lori, let me start with you. Talk to us a little bit about some of the general ethical 
issues and considerations that, that have to be grappled with as we think about this technology and its application into the legal sphere? Sure. Um, so, you know, as Steve mentioned, I mean, there are going to be different issues depending on the different technology. And there's been a lot of focus on chat GPT. And that seems to be what we know of, or at least have heard a fair amount about. And there are two key issues that come to mind from my perspective. And that is one, confidentiality and reliability accuracy. So we know a couple things about the current iteration of ChatGPT, to use that as an example. First, there is no confidentiality. And the program tells you that from, from the very beginning, that the conversations may be reviewed and that you should not share any sensitive information. The AI actually learns from the past conversations and the text inputs that you provide it. It stores them, it analyzes it, um, whatever information you put in. And some human out there um, may be looking at this from time to time too as they continue to improve upon their products. Um, as most of you all know, uh, many of you at least who are lawyers, lawyers have an obligation under Rule 1.6 to maintain the confidentiality of all information related to the client's representation. Now, what some don't always appreciate, that that is actually much more expansive than the attorney-client privilege. So we're not just talking about you can't share privileged information. I think we uh, that's you know a basic understanding that everyone has. But confidentiality really extends to anything related to the representation of the client. So if you don't have your client's consent to put that information in there and it relates their representation in any way, it may not be privileged. You can't share it. And of course, if you actually do share privileged information, which you shouldn't with a third party, you do risk waiver of the privilege. And then on the second issue, the reliability, uh, we know now at least some of the current iterations of, of at least ChatGPT and, and possibly other AI, that it is not reliable for research or advice. Many of you have, are probably aware of the very well publicized New York case recently where a lawyer used ChatGPT to research and write a brief that was ultimately submitted to the court contained non-existent case law that had uh, bogus quotes, fake citations, and that lawyer is now facing the possibility of sanctions. But he did you know, take one step further to try to verify the information by asking ChatGPT whether the cases were fake. So but <laughs> <laughs> that, that didn't help him much either. So we know that it, it, it can sound very authoritative, but it isn't always authoritative. Now, but the use of proprietary AI or something within a closed universe, for example, something different than public AI like ChatGPT, you may be able to largely remove some of those confidentiality concerns. However, at least from a law firm perspective and probably in other organizations as well, even in those situations, there may be information that you don't want to wholesale share with others in your organization. For example, in, in, you know, in, a, in a law firm, we have ethical walls in place. You know, there are certain things that we can't share from one client's information you know, with anyone who's working on a client team of another. So that's something that we are going to grapple with as we look to harness and you know, benefit from the benefits of generative AI, but while also maintaining um, those ethical walls in place. And so that's something that we would, be, we would be looking at when we evaluate AI tools. Lori, question for you. 
What's the obligation? Uh, I know there is some obligation under under the rules for lawyers to be aware of technology, to understand it. What are those guidelines and how do they apply to this new iteration of software? So um, you're referring to Rule 1.1, which um, under Rule 1.1, lawyers have an ethical obligation to understand the benefits and the risks of the use of technology. So it's sort of twofold. One, you should be using technology for your clients. But at the same time, you have to educate yourself on the technology and the risks and the benefits of it. You know, of course, we're hearing a lot about the benefits of efficiency. And there certainly can be huge efficiency benefits. But depending on what you're using generative AI for, you need to understand where the AI is pulling its information and is it reliable? Also, what is the purpose that you're using it for? If you don't intend to rely on it to draft a contractual provision or provide an answer to a legal question, then you're really using it more as an idea generator, a first draft of a communication, then in that you or that you plan to confirm the information that it provides to you with other trusted sources, then you know perhaps you don't need to dig a lot deeper into you know where's this AI coming from and 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 how do I confirm its accuracy because you aren't actually relying on it for its accuracy. But of course you do need to understand you always will need to understand the confidentiality per- parameters. And that's going to be important for lawyers, non-lawyers. I mean everyone wants to protect their their confidential information. So that's going to be a key issue, no matter who you are and what how you're using the AI. The transparency issue is a, a challenge, isn't it? Obviously, if you're using it as a proprietary system and you know exactly what databases you're using it, that's one thing. Using some of these general programs like ChatGPT, it's difficult to get a handle on exactly what source material they're using. Yeah. Yes, and that's the obligation. Um, you know, of disclosure is, I think, a question that's come up a fair amount. You know, what obligation do lawyers have to disclose that they're using generative AI? And um, I, again, I think it depends on the situation. And, you know, pulling from that, the New York snafu <laughs> that we all saw, we've already seen, and I think just today I heard that there's a third federal judge. We've had three federal judges come out with standing orders that are addressing this issue and this concern. And it focuses on transparency and reliability. And there was a a judge in Illinois, one in Texas, and now I just, there was a new one from Pennsylvania. They came out with standing orders that are generally sort of similar, but they, they, they take the form of either you need to, each lawyer needs to certify either that they're not, no, no portion of their brief was drafted using AI or that any of the language that they used was actually verified and checked by a human. Another version of that was the Illinois judge who who issued a similar order that was really focused on you have to disclose the AI tool that you use and explain how you used it. And I think, again, the focus there is probably, you know, for the court and for opposing counsel, you know, the court is reading a brief. You know, every lawyer has an obligation to be um, truthful and accurate with their submissions and their filings. And a judge can, you know, generally should be able to rely on the fact that someone has cited a case and it actually exists. Now we're seeing citations that don't exist. And same for opposing counsel, that that the case actually exists. It says what you say it says. And, you know, there's there's just that. I, I think that's one more point driving home the need to be accurate and transparent 
about how you're using this. You know, also under Rule 1.4, lawyers are required to consult with their clients about how they're handling the representation and the clients and how the client's objectives are going to be accomplished. So does that mean you have to disclose to the client that you're using generative AI? And I hate to sound like broken record, but again, I think it depends. I think it depends how you're using it, what the client expectations are. If you're using it in some minor role for more of an idea generator, I, I would say no. But if you are taking a mass portfolio of work from a client and you're creating contracts using generative AI, let's say, for example, let's say you have a huge portfolio of real estate leases and you're going to create them all using generative AI. That's probably something you want to have a conversation with your client about. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. This is how we're going to ensure that it, you know, it's going to be checked. It's, there's going to be a QC process for the whole thing. So, you know, again, I think it depends on the situation and how you're using it. If I can jump in, I think it would be fair to say that there is going to be a patchwork of regulations, right? So the California State Bar is going to be creating or some guidelines around the use of AI. You mentioned a couple of federal judges or judges coming out with their own, you know, their own rules about when to disclose, what to disclose. So I think it would be fair to say that over the next one year or two years, we will start seeing a patchwork of regulations that all of us have to be aware of when we are planning to use AI. Yeah, absolutely. Sitting on the client side, working with law firms, you know, for me, I'm bullish on the future of generative AI. I want to see my law firms understanding how to use it better. I saw a question came in around the use of it uh, for law firms. You know, for me, you're talking about like, you should have a conversation with your client around, you know, we might use generative AI to come up with the first draft or a template for leases or whatever, but then we're going to have people review it, right? To me, why is that any different than you saying you're going to use an army of first years to come up with a bunch of contract language and then have it reviewed by people that are experts uh, in the field? Um, if you can do that first draft pass with generative AI instead and still do the review and make sure that the right set of eyes and the right language is in there, and that's an efficiency savings for you, it's cost savings for me, why would I be opposed to that? You know, it, it, it's interesting, Travis, that the New York case that Laurie was referring to, the publicity around it is, is a failure of ChatGPT, is a failure of the technology. It struck me more as a failure to supervise when I used to handle cases and would have associates writing briefs, I would read at least the main cases they cited just to make sure they were citing them for the right proposition. They weren't missing anything. And I don't know how using technology of this nature raises any different issues. Just following up, Travis, I, I think uh, one of the things you, know, you said was the difference between uh, generative AI or a, an army of associates. Um, it's for me, the first thing I think of is the confidentiality issue. Right. The associates are your associates. The generative AI tool may not be yours. And so there's always that confidentiality issue and, and maybe some others as well. Kiran, as you were talking about regulation, I, I think you're right. I think we're going to see a, a whole bunch of different uh, approaches to regulation of the generative AI usage. Uh, but I'll go back to what Laurie was talking about and citing the rules, which I always like to hear. You know, there is always that baseline for legal practitioners exactly. of the ethical rules that you kind of build up with the specialist stuff on top of that. So, Joe, keep going. Talk a little bit about how, you know, Alas is in the risk management business, advising its member firms. How have you sort of sorted through it? I know you're providing some general <laughs> guidance to 
member firms as to as the thoughts they ought to have. Some of it's gotten wide publicity and some of it hasn't. How do you sort of generally approach the risk-benefit analysis with using generative AI? Well, it's interesting. You said uh, two things in that one sentence. You said we're in the business of uh, risk mitigation and, you know, then talked about our member firms. And uh, that does put us in a bit of a unique situation. We are thinking about if and how to use generative AI for our own business purposes, right? And then we're thinking about how to help educate, help navigate with our member firms, their usage and uh, what may make sense for the law firms that that we uh, insure. And so I'm sure this is not news to anybody. We have a uh, portfolio of task forces, a, a broad one that's kind of looking holistically uh, at the company's endeavors and making sure we're staying consistent in what we're thinking of doing ourselves and what we would advise our law firms to do. And then we have more specialist mini task force. You know, we have a, uh, a data analysis group within Alas, and uh, they have particular things that they're looking at. And then me in, in the loss prevention realm, I'm more focused on what would be useful to sort of educate and, and train and discuss with our member firms to help them navigate some of the things that they would that would uh, be facing these days. Uh, I think you alluded, Steve, to the fact that we've put out some materials uh, already. Uh, when ChatGPT was exploding, we took a look at it, and our advice at that time was, in our estimation, ChatGPT in its present form seems too risky for client work. It does have that tendency to hallucinate. If you're caught in the hallucination situation in federal court, it can be very embarrassing. It's just seem too risky now, uh, not only for the ethical reasons, but for, you know, uh, the reputational issues. There's so much focus on it. And so we said, you know, our advice would be uh, chat GPT in its present form, probably too risky for client work. We've kind of taken a step back to get a broader view. And as we've, we've discussed already, uh, chat GPT is but one thing in a broad and vast universe of, of generative AI. Uh, technologies. And Lori brought up the closed proprietary systems, um, which can help carve out some of the riskiness, uh, depending on how you close and proprietaryize, just made that word up, uh, the system. And so we've been working on putting out sample policy language, sample checklists for firms to use to make sure that they're thinking about this in an organized way that they're not only making sure to hit all of the right analysis steps, but then keeping track of what they're doing or not doing uh, and why. So that's a long answer to a short question, Steve, but I, I hope I covered some good stuff there for you. Yeah, and let me let me follow it up. We got a question from the audience and there's, there's a few issues embedded in the question. Let me pull out one of them because it follows along what you're talking about. The question is how widespread is the use of chat GPT or GPT-4 within law firms? And if partners are not using them, are they taking any actions to prevent their associates from using them? So, Joe, I'll, I'll start with you, but really any this question for anybody. What is your sense of the usage of this in the industry? And if this technology is available on a browser, ChatGPT is, if it's the policy not to use it, how do you see people enforcing that policy, which is, I think, the question we're asked. Well, it's it's hard for me to know since I... You know, I'm known as an alas person, how 
honest the conversations are that I'm having. I'm hearing skepticism <laughs> from law firms about ChatGPT in particular. I, I hope that's that's true. And there is a healthy amount of skepticism for all the reasons that that Lori pointed out, all the risks. So if, if it is true what they're telling me, I'm hearing a lot of skepticism, which is heartening. It is also possible that they're talking to their insurer and therefore shading things. I hope that's the case. Don't think it is in our mutual. <laughs> I think that the how do you police it is a really tough question. And I think that having a dialogue and training can help because the more you can get out into the fabric of the organization, what this really is, what it can do, what it can't do, what the risks are, what the ramifications are if we get it wrong, that you create sort of an understanding that can help self-police a little bit. So you don't have that policy that sits there on the website and then people are off doing something else because it's available in a browser. People are are being regulated by the fact that they they understand the issues that they can inadvertently footfault into that may be quite dramatic from from all sorts of perspectives, whether it's client relationship, trade secret, getting put on blast in the press for a misstep. I mean, all, all sorts of stuff. So. I, I would agree with Joe generally on a lot of that. Um, we, you know, we certainly haven't banned the use at our firm. Um, and But I, I think the focus really is, one, because I don't think you literally could, because anyone can just open their phone or their iPad and, and, and use it that way. I think the more important focus is on educating people, as, as Joe just mentioned, that you know, you have to understand the risks and the serious, very serious issues that um, could befall you and the firm um, and in violation of all of our obligations to our clients, which are, you know, is always priority number one. And so I think the continued, and that's what we've tried to do so far is, you know, we put out a few things on educating about the use of generative AI like ChatGPT, but that, you know, noting that we are also exploring ways to harness the technology, you know, through perhaps other tools and proprietary tools, et cetera, so that, you know, we don't want to put our head in the sands about generative AI. I think that's not the right approach. Um, we want to use it, and some of our clients are very excited about it. Um, some are understandably probably more cautious about it, but I think it all comes, it's not going away, and it's already there, and it's been there in, you know, other other forms, and it's just, you know, it's just made a much bigger splash with ChatGPT because it's truly just available to everybody right now for anything and for any purpose. Um, so that our focus, I think, will be much, will be on, on training and has been on training. Lori, I was going to say the um, the singular focus on the public instance of ChatGPT as a stand-in for generative AI makes the conversation much more difficult because, yeah, there's a lot of confidentiality issues with that, ethics, all the stuff, we you know, the risks everybody always talks about. But there are hundreds of generative AI tools that are not ChatGPT. And even ChatGPT, you can talk about private instances and pointing it at certain databases to fix hallucination problems. And so when we talk broadly about generative AI, but then focus just on for example, banning the, the use of the public instance of ChatGPT, it really misses the opportunity in these other areas, right? Like I can go on Bing.com, I can use AI to have a chat as a search engine, right? Just this morning, my Gmail now has write an email for me. I can click a button and it will write the email for me in Gmail, right? And this is all my personal side, but like those are tools that are built into the things we use every day. We know Microsoft is going to come out with Copilot for Word and PowerPoint and Excel 
and people will be able to build things in that using uh, generative AI. I, I don't foresee people banning efficiency tools in things that they use every day, right? It's, again, having the conversation so focused on ChatGPT because that is the hot thing right now. And that's, and that's where we, everybody can go and try it out. But there are so many, like I said, so hundreds of tools that um, will give people the opportunity to find efficiencies in their work. The other aspect is that, I don't know if anybody else follows Ethan Mollick. He's this professor at Wharton. Uh, great Twitter follow, by the way. He's also got a Substack that I read. And he just came out with this article in his Substack that talks about how organizations will have a very difficult time finding how to, how to use generative AI to become more efficient, but individuals are actually really good at it. And so I was going to, I wish we had like a poll question so we could ask the attendees, like how many of you have actually gone on there, not for work, not to build a brief or whatever, just gone on there and tried this technology? Because I don't think we've seen such a transformative technology that has uh, such ease of use. Like anybody can use it. You can go on the browser and try it out and understand, start to understand how this technology works. And then for yourself, again, in your own personal life, or if there are low risk things in your daily work around brainstorming, things like that, that you can use it for, try it. Uh, and you will start to see the opportunity uh, that is at hand uh, with this technology. I think he was citing these studies that were you know, on an individual basis, people can find 20 to 80% efficiency gains because they understand their work. It's really hard for organizations to be able to say because this technology is so broad and it can apply to anybody's work, um, it's hard for organizations to say, do this, do that, do it this way. It's a lot easier for an individual to say, this is what my daily work is. Here's how I could use uh, a tool like this to help me. Again, setting, you know, like there's so many risks and there's so many things we have to do to use it in the right way. Um, but if you can uh, focus on the lower risk uh, opportunities, um, try it out and, and see for yourself because that's where you will see the opportunity much more than waiting for somebody to tell you how to use it. Travis, I'll probably double down on that one. Recently, I was reading this blog from Shelley Palmer. He's another technologist and his title was writing my own blog is so 2022. <laughs> so, um, but I think I, I do want to say that, I mean, there is quite some skepticism. I've not heard about many law firms actually trying to use generative AI at this point, but I also want to take us away from the, uh, from, from the whole fear. There is fear, you know, understandable fear, because this is one of those technologies in a knowledge, you know, profession where suddenly AI has sort of democratized the, you know, the, its availability, right? Everybody can access it. And therefore, there is a level of fear on whether it be confidentiality, whether it be hallucinations or using this uh, directly in one's own, you know, one's own profession. So I do want to say, though, is I believe that successful lawyers or law firms will focus on using technology to enable, support, augment their current expertise, the human expertise that cannot be replicated by any technology today. So in addition to everything that you know, Joe or Laurie and you know, Travis said, we do see there is quite some potential applications on the other side if used properly, if trained properly, can actually be a benefit both to the law firm as well as the client side. So how do you build this into your discussions with your service providers? This is, I guess, a question, Karen, for you and Travis. This is sort of related to this second part of the question we got from the audience, which asked about 
clients being open to use of generative AI, the efficiency in what case, in that case, what does that mean for the hours build and what's the expectation around, around that? It also picks up a little bit on the point Lori and Joe are making about disclosing use to your clients. How do you sort through this technology as it impacts your relationship with your service providers? I would focus on that transparency piece. Let's talk about it. Let's let's say, do you have ideas in it? What are you thinking about when it comes to this, right? I, I know you're not going to go to the public instance of chat GPT and build uh, my, my contracts in there, right? And I don't want you to do that. You're not going to do that. But let's talk about what we can do today and what we can build towards as we work together in the future on this, right? Because as an organization, uh, Allstate, we are working on how we can utilize it for all the work that we do at Allstate, right? And it's going to be incumbent on us to work with our service providers to make sure they're thinking and working in that same direction. We don't have the answers like you started this this uh, conversation off with, right? No, Nobody has clear 100% answers. You should do this. You shouldn't do that. Um, for this technology. And so for us, it's having that open, honest conversation about here's how we think we could utilize this technology. Here's how we think it could build efficiencies for us as the firm, for you as the uh, you know, person that's paying for it. Um, what what can we do together uh, to build out that future? Yeah, I think, um, you know, at Liberty Mutual, at least in the legal department, we are always, always on the lookout for law firms, vendors, anybody whose products or services can change the way we deliver legal services and change it to, to make it more consistent, you know, better quality and also in a cost effective manner. So um, we have had a couple of vendors, not law firms, but a couple of vendors, but uh, when law firms or vendors approach us about their tools or technology, we are very open to understanding what their use cases are, how are they going to be managing, how are they going to be implementing it, how are they going to maintain the confidentiality and so on. And we would like to partner with them. We want to partner on the evaluation, the testing, you know, it's use cases. So, you know, as Travis said, I mean, the buzz and capabilities of generative AI are true, they are real, but we still need to train them, test them, pilot them in a very secure environment uh, and I think Laurie pointed, uh, you know, previously, each client might have a different use case. So how would a law firm that is managing multiple clients keep that wall, you know, between some of these instances? So I think that's what we would, you know, that's what we are exploring. And that's how we would partner with our vendors. You look at these studies that come out around the industries that are most likely to be disrupted by generative AI and legal comes in at the near the top or at the top for all of them. And so I personally, and from a company perspective, I'd like to be at the forefront of that conversation, understand how we are going to be a part of that disruption rather than sitting and waiting for the disruption to happen uh, to us or to me. Uh, that is, uh, it, it is coming. Uh, and so we should partner together to figure out how we, how we do that rather than, again, waiting. One of the questions, I, whenever I do a presentation, I, I always get this question, and we haven't been asked it yet, but I'm certain it sort of was embedded in the question, I guess, which is, do you see this changing the way services are priced by law firms? Uh, I'll give you my answer here in a minute. But there's, a, I get asked the question, is this finally going to be the death of the billable hour? And I'm, I'm, I'm curious as to the reaction of the four of you to that question. I, I have a strong reaction myself that I'll save for later. I think we are trying to figure out who's going to go first on this one. Who's going to put it out there? <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll go first. I have been struck over the 
decades I've been in this business at the resiliency of the billable hour. And I don't see anything about this technology that changes that resilience. If anything, I'm curious as to your reaction to this from a from a purchaser standpoint, if you think this technology will build in efficiencies, doesn't that make you less willing to enter into fixed fees because it will inevitably be premised on data sets that are built on inefficient information? Yeah, I think that's an interesting perspective because you know we've gone back and forth on AFAs versus hourly and you know, tried out a variety of things with our service providers. And like you said, uh, people have been predicting the death of uh, the billable hour for a long time, uh, and it has yet to happen. And I think one of the things for me in terms of partnering with this technology is having that open conversation about how do we both benefit from the use of it, right? For me, it's not about us taking advantage of that and saying, must use it in all these cases, and we're going to drive down costs significantly. But I also don't want to, like you said, I wouldn't want to enter into a bunch of uh, fixed fee arrangements that somebody then on the other side, without me knowing or like without that transparency, is using AI to do it, you know, 10 times whatever faster. Uh, and then I could have, you know, spent less money on an hourly basis. I think it's about uh, that conversation and sharing uh, in the benefits of the technology as we identify that, right? We don't know what that is today, but as we start to figure that out, it's about how can we go together? So it's a partnership between us and our service providers. And we want a, that partnership to be a positive one and a strategic one. And so we should understand how we both uh, benefit uh, from the use of this type of technology in, in terms of how we price out manners. So Steve, I'll probably jump in on a couple of things. So I agree with Travis, but I also think there is a time element here. So for example, in the next one to two years, as this technology is either used or not used by law firms, you are going to see that you know, the whole pricing change. At the end of the day, the billable the billable hour is some kind of a measure to look at the value added, whether it's the value of goods produced or the value of the goods, you know, the impact of those goods or the services, right? That's what it's trying to measure. So in the very beginning, do you see much of a change? I don't think so. I would agree with Travis, you know, we would like to have a conversation with our law firms, vendors, and so on, and maybe the billable hour continues for some more time. However, the second perspective is as more and more law firms and corporate legal departments start using this technology, and we are talking about a private generative AI kind of a technology, you will see that democratization coming through competition. You will see a lot more firms or services picking parts and pieces of this who might end up going through a you know, like an alternative fee arrangement, like a fixed fee. So for example, over the last four or five years, there has been a trend in the use of alternative legal service providers. They don't charge billable hours, but they have a fixed fee or something different. Similarly, in e-discovery, at the one point, you know, we had one or two mega e-discovery providers. Now, over time, we have so many that every law firm or client can choose. Some clients are also doing it in-house. So over time, for each one of these practice areas, you could look at a you could look at it from a complexity perspective maybe some of the lower complexity ones may not be a billable hour it might be a fixed fee and the higher complexity might still remain and over time you will see this maturity kick in throughout these complexity of these practice areas Kiran, when you mentioned e-discovery it got me thinking that in some ways we've seen similar things before right like in the olden days or my time at least 
I'll call those the olden days, you had associates with books in the library, billing by the hour. Then Westlaw and Lexus came along. Now you had a cost for the database and still hourly for the associates doing research, but but less, right? Same in the e-discovery realm. The hordes of associates in a warehouse with boxes has been replaced by hourly work by lawyers, but less so, and then a technology cost element too. And I could see that over time happening here where, it's, Steve, you know, the, the hourly billing persists for the lawyers, but the lawyer work is uh, maybe less or different or the efficiency has changed as augmented by a technology that then has its own sort of cost profile added into the mix of total cost for a matter. Fair enough. Joe, let's stay with you for a second. You mentioned this before, as you've seen generative AI evolve just over the last few months, it's evolved the perspective of alas. And I'll, I'll start by asking you this question, but it applies to everyone. This thing is moving so quickly. New products are coming out every day. There are hundreds of them. There's new capabilities that keep coming out. How do you keep abreast of these developments and what they mean in terms of the, the risks and the benefits of using these technologies? I think that's a, a challenge. Things like today, you know, making sure that you're, you're out there as part of the conversation, uh, whether it's panels like this or, or blogs or, you know, other uh, sources of media. We, we have a benefit because we're able to talk to our member firms and tap into that wide and varied collection of experiences to try and pull together what's happening out among our membership. And what, what we find is, is, as you said, I mean, there are a lot of different things every day that are, are coming out or that our firms are exploring. I think this is, this is my opinion. We're sort of in that realm of there are a lot of places uh, announcing things today that won't exist long into the future. <laughs> the, the vaporware era where, you know, everybody, it's the big new thing. A lot of money is going to it. The kernel of an idea gets massive funding and then disappears. And so I think that uh, separating the wheat from the chaff is, is a real challenge. Um, there's so much change, so much coming at everybody and everybody is, is wanting to find the right path. Uh, but it's, it's made more complicated by what might be a, a period of uh, a lot of fly-by-night stuff as well. That's why to, to go back to a previous answer, Steve, you know, we're, we're trying to give our firms, you know, some, some level of framework of how to go about analyzing these things as they come into the purview of the firm. Have a designated uh, person or group or committee that's looking at these things as they come in. Have a metric for how you're analyzing, you know, on, on what points. And how are these things being analyzed and how are you making decisions on what's worth testing or uh, piloting or, or considering further versus what just gets sort of uh, disregarded as inappropriate um, and to make sure that you're doing it in sort of a, a, a comprehensive and also a systematic way. I mean, I kind of hit on this on my spiel at the beginning, which was use it, test it for yourself. That's how you can stay up to date on what the technology is doing. 
and I don't even have to use it for work. I, I planned a vacation using it. It's like a travel guide with me. Uh, you can uh, use it in such a I hope, I hope it sent you to a place that existed. I went to Branson. I went to <laughs> And it was a fantastic trip. And it gives me an itinerary. I'm going to Japan next month. It helped me build my entire itinerary. Like those are the kinds of things that you can do to see what this technology does that are completely low risk, have nothing to do with putting your license at risk or getting sanctions, but you, you are part of the conversation. I, I, I have never, like Joe, I'm not, Joe was a coder. I was not, I never coded anything. But over a weekend, I was able to create a program in Python alongside ChatGPT that actually worked. I thought that was the coolest thing. It didn't do much, but it, it went from nothing to something. You can test this stuff out for yourself uh, for free. Like this, again, it is completely democratized what, a potentially extraordinarily transformative technology. I don't think we've seen anything like this at this scale that is this available uh, uh, to everyone. I think we are probably uh, looking at the next legal tech entrepreneur in uh, Travis here. So um, <laughs> it seems so, like um, it, doesn't it? Right? Yeah. Um, so as part of our legal operations innovation agenda, we plan to keep up with it on sort of two pillars, if I may. So pillar one is about education. Pillar two is about exposure. So education is, at the end of the day, everything that we have spoken about, right? So be part of the conversation. Understand what the technology is. How does it actually work? What are some of its risks? And again, I'm not an attorney, but I, th I know, you know, our director of innovation, who is an attorney, talks about sort of the uh, ethical issues and how do you keep all of that and keep educating the larger legal community about it. From a exposure perspective, what we have done is we are always trying to pilot with various vendors who bring or who talk about using this technology. So we, we test them, we try it out, we have uh, attorneys, senior practice area leaders, uh, we have paralegal, administrative assistant, professionals, data science, all of the cross-functional team that is involved in trying out new things. We may not use it as a final product, but to understand what its limitations are, what can it do, what can it not do, and it also raises, you know, by just trying to trying to do these things, they're able to understand what the impact of the technology could be in the future. But I do go back to what Travis said. This is just one, right? We are all talking about ChatGPT. BARD is going to, you know, BARD might also get implemented in so many different places. We will see Microsoft trying to uh, use OpenAI's technology in various of, you know, various products that they have. So, you know, over time, we are going to see a lot more. So why not be at the front of that? Absolutely. Laurie, Laurie let, me, let me turn to you and ask you a question I know is a bit unfair. But what does this mean for training of associates if we assume generative AI products are going to take away a number of the more routine or mundane tasks that lawyers, lawyers handle, many of which have been used for training purposes and development people? How do we think about the use of this technology alongside our obligation to train associates in their, in their various competencies? Well, Look, I, I mean, obviously it doesn't eliminate that obligation. And I think that we will find ways as we've always found ways to train our associates. I mean, the examples that Joe gave are great. You know, but what did we do before Westlaw? What did we do before we had e-discovery vendors? I mean, you sat in a room and you look through every document. Instead, you know, the focus and the way we practice law evolves a little bit. For example, you know, now 
using the e-discovery um, example, the focus is on coming up with agreed upon search terms with your opposing counsel. It's not that, you know, and search parameters and how you're going to search for the documents and, you know, an agreed upon protocol so that you don't fall. And, and as long as you aren't running afoul of that, you've, you know, comply with your e-discovery obligations. So um, it's a little bit different, but I think that, you know, the training, I mean, we've got to make a conscious effort to continue to train our associates. I mean, not to go in a whole nother um, just tangent, but, you know, we've seen that with the remote work. I mean, that's another good example is that we've got to evolve and we've got to continue to figure out how we can train our associates um, and educate them when they're not literally sitting right next to us and they're not, you know, sitting in a room and we're not running into them in the hallway. But that's what we'll have to continue to do here as well. You know, they still have to learn the basics. I mean, you have to explain, well, this is, you know, this is why we're using this technology. This is how we're using the technology. I mean, we can go through all of the safeguards that have to be in place, but then they still have to understand that the technology doesn't have judgment. The technology can't provide advice and that's still their job. So the technology can do some of the nuts and bolts stuff that frankly, maybe they'll be better lawyers for it because we don't they don't have to spend the time doing what we would really consider a lot of administrative tasks and instead learning why we're doing those things and why we're including a particular provision in a contract versus, you know, and why what we're looking for in documents and, you know, that they may not have to spend the hours upon hours, I mean, that I certainly sat in a warehouse looking through boxes of documents. I think I did too. And so <laughs> there's nothing I like better than when the e-discovery stuff came along, you didn't have to do that anymore. Karen and Travis, what does this mean to you for training of both your teams in-house and the expectations of your outside law firms? Currently, the technology is not in a place that can be utilized in our day-to-day -day operations. So that sort of puts us in a little bit of a, in a good space, if I may, because we got some time to think about what does it mean? How do you train? How does it, you know, how do we bring them in? How do you share the knowledge and so on? My view is before we jump into the use of AI or how do we train, I think because we have this runway, I would want to step back and sort of focus on knowledge management. How do you make sure that all the documents and all the work product that we are creating is tagged properly? How do you, how are you ready? How are you going to train your, you know, if, you know, we've been talking about a private instance of a generative AI tool, but it needs some training material. It needs the data, uh, you know, the fuel to have that engine run, right? So how do you make sure that that fuel is ready? So we are focused on the knowledge management, you know, tagging it properly, making sure that we are reusing it, we have the right material there, right? So that's one part of it. The second part also comes to around data quality. We have been talking about the impact of, like such as hallucinations, overconfidence of AI. I think there is a deeper issue. There is also a deeper issue about sort of the biases that would come through the data. If you feed it bad data, biased data, you might actually get a biased answer too. That's what it's learning from. So how do we make sure that anything that we are feeding it in or when we are training this particular system is free of some of these biases? So I think that's where our focus is going to be to make sure that we are prepared and planned. In addition to you know what I spoke before is making sure that our attorneys are exposed and are educated on you know what are the potential benefits and risks of such a technology. 
Yeah, exactly what Karen said there. And um, the other thing I'll add is for years, we've been focused on digital transformation of the work that we do, right? Taking our manual processes, taking processes that exist in someone's head and like Karen said, documenting them, getting them down on paper, but also changing them so that they're more automated, perhaps more self-service, perhaps something digital, right? And now our opportunity as we do that is to identify points in those processes where generative AI could come into use, right? And instead of now just doing it and not having that tool or technology in mind, we can have a future where we have access to a tool like this as we rebuild those processes. Because we had to do that work anyway to do that digital transformation. Uh, and now we can do it with this in mind so that, again, we're setting ourselves up and we have the data in the right place. We have the right data down, it's out of people's heads and documented. And then a tool like, um, you know, a private instance of ChatGPT could uh, uh, point at that knowledge base and give us information that doesn't have hallucinations and doesn't have confidentiality issues. And so we're setting ourselves up for that future that is coming probably faster than people realize. It's not here yet, but it is coming really soon. This technology is moving very quickly, isn't it? And I know that one of the one of the challenges, the excitement around generative AI has built to the point where you have a lot of folks around various organizations experimenting with it or being given demos by some of these emerging companies that are playing. And yet we all have policies around how you vet out software, how you vet out applications. It's not really much different than that, is it? Steve, maybe I would probably um, just jump in here. Um, Microsoft also came out with a white paper about the responsible use of AI. And I'll probably, you know, I'll, I'll put in a link on our chat here so that people can refer and everybody. Uh, it also, uh, you can also go to that website and look at a template. Uh, it talks about how do you look at, you know, any AI solution? What are some of the risks associated with it? Where are you? How is How are you dealing with customers? What are the systems that are impacted by it? And it talks about some of the risks. So it's a, it, it actually provides a very nice template where if people or law firms or organizations who are interested in trying something out can look at it and at least use that as a framework to build or, you know, build something off it. That would be great. I think people would appreciate that, Karen. Thanks. A couple of questions that came in before we got started. I think we've dealt with most of them. One question is, how does one cite AI if it's used as a source? You should not cite it. <laughs> you should not use it as a source. It's not a source. <laughs> you should go find the source and cite the source. So if it gives you some information, go find the source and then cite the source. You should not cite to it. And Joe, you touched a little bit on this, and uh, I'll ask you to sort of expound a little bit. The question is, what do you think is the best framework for all of those out there for guiding AI development, particularly generative AI? You talked about some of the guidelines you put out there. Can you sort of flesh out your thoughts a little bit on what a framework might be? Yeah, I think, and this goes back to something that, uh, that Laurie mentioned right at the outset, I don't know that everybody at Alas would agree with everything I'm saying, but I think my sense is the closed, proprietary, specialized systems that are trained on a legal corpus of materials and directed at legal problems, to the extent those come to maturity over time, I think that generative AI in, in that space can be, you know, done correctly, something that 
keeps the risks at bay or or manageable and can provide uh, a really good uh, efficiency gains. I, I think getting from where we are now, which is you know the open public chat GPT and a bunch of nascent efforts to get more closed, proprietary, specialized. Um, I think we got a ways to go. I think we got potentially a long way to go and a lot of fits and starts along the way, which I think uh, you know is going to require the typical development process, right? Of understanding and, and testing and pilot programs and, and sort of that feedback loop before you're sort of using it front and center, center stage, right? There, there's going to be sort of that innovation incubator that goes on to make sure that you're addressing all the things that will will come up. And, and those things that come up will be different. The open public has a different risk profile. And I think that's part of the reason that the closed proprietary uh, is going to be the way to go because you, you kind of whittle the risk as you move in that direction uh, while also hopefully enhancing the efficiency because you have a more targeted focus for where this is going to be be useful. I think we've kind of over time, you know, sussed out a bunch of the different sort of risk pockets, you know, especially in our, our last little discussion there where we were pulling out the um, everything from risk and bi uh, bias and discrimination to copyright to, you know, our old friends, accuracy and reliability and confidentiality and my favorite, the, you know, model rules of professional responsibility. So I think keeping all that in the incubator as we move um, in a direction that can hopefully be less risky and, and more useful over time. I got another question for my insurance friends. Do any of you have a great resource as to how cyber and other types of insurance carriers are looking at insured use of AI products? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I, I personally, at this point, I don't. I'm hoping that somebody at, you know, somebody who's responsible for the cyber security related underwriting and claims is definitely looking at that. Fair enough. As we sort of move towards our, our closing point here, let me uh, give each of you a few minutes each to sort of share any additional thoughts you want to share with, with the audience. Kieran, you want to start with you? Yeah, I think uh, uh, closing thoughts, generative AI, any other tool related with AI or products using these, I think are greatly going to change the way we think about legal services or the delivery of legal services. However, it's no different. I mean, there's no need to be afraid of how, you know, the whole world is going to change or different or fall apart. I think it's really an opportunity for many law firms, many organizations to sort of rethink the way you can make your clients work more valuable. So with that being said, I think any of these tools are not yet ready for full-time production. And I think, you know, Laurie's example has clearly proven that. I think it needs to take some more time, but at the same time, we need to be ready. We need to expose, educate, understand what are some of its capabilities and be ready for the journey ahead. Joe, what about you? I liked what uh, Kiran was saying earlier about, and, and Travis touched on it as well, the notion of digital transformation. You know, that's the big picture overarching trend. This is a very dramatic scene in that story. Uh, but it's part of that overarching digital transformation. I think uh, Kiran's points about data quality uh, and metrics around data and about this being an opportunity with generative AI as a place to prepare, uh, that these things aren't ready for prime time, 
But at, at some point, as digital transfer, transformation continues, they're going to change and they are going to potentially be ready for some things. Preparing for that with how you're looking at your data, with how you're looking at your operations, or how you're looking at this raw material of the generative AI tool uh, can be effectively used without too much risk or while appropriately cabining risk makes this an exciting time. I think now is also the time to train and educate your people because uh, a policy on paper uh, is not going to be sufficient. You're going to want your people to have an understanding. What is this? What is this not? What can it be used for? What can't it be used for and why? So that you have that notion of a bit of self-regulation because just a, a paper policy is not going to do it. Lori, how about you? Closing remarks? Sure. I mean, I think this is, look, I think this is exciting. I think that it is not going to be the demise of, you know, legal of associates or, or the law firms. I think that instead, like all like other efficiencies that we've seen and, and other technology we've seen in the legal field, that it will just enhance our services and it will allow lawyers to focus their time and efforts on really providing legal advice versus some and, and really minimize the time that's needing to be spent on some of the more rote tasks and that we can improve efficiency and therefore we can improve the delivery of excellent legal services to our clients. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen here. Although, you know, of course, with all the caveats that we've discussed today, I mean, there's still a lot to think about, a lot to work through. But I think it all in all is going to be a really positive, have a positive impact on the legal industry. Thanks. Travis, I'll give you the last word. All right. Building on what Lori was saying there, um, I think it's really important to talk to your teams and folks who are trying to get excited about this, that this is not about people replacement. Everything we've seen with these tools so far is that they're people augmentation. They are making you more effective and more efficient at your job. It is not about replacing you with artificial intelligence. And I think that's one of the baseline fears that folks might have about learning about this technology, getting it implemented into their companies, is that uh, nobody wants to feel like their job is going to be replaced. And um, like I said, everything we've seen so far from the studies and from how the use of these tools is going is that that is not the case with this type of technology. It is a, a partner with you to augment how you do uh, your job. And so when I talk to my team about it and I talk to the broader department, I always make sure to uh, hit on that point uh, to try to allay some of those fears. Well, thanks, everybody. Those are great points. And I think uh, one of the messages that's come through clearly from all of you is, is a point Travis just made, which is don't be afraid of this technology. Embrace it, but do it thoughtfully, carefully, and with a recognition of the risks so you can take advantage of the benefits. Let me say thank you to the panelists for your great insights, to the participants for listening. Thanks, everybody, for joining, and we appreciate your time. Hope you got value out of it. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.